1: Well, good morning. Uh, We're going to do a little audience participation this morning. Sorry, introverts. Anybody ever, in any circumstance, ever in your life, in any way, any time with any person, ever done anything that you regret? Okay. Okay just let the record show that's 100%. Uh, I had one this last week, actually. I'll share it with you. It was a small thing, but it was a conversation that I, gosh, nope, overstepped the line. Um, we're trying this new thing at home, uh, trying to do the gluten-free, like dairy-free thing. Okay, so that's kind of our next steps, and so I'm, I'm all in. I'm all trying to support Mandy in this whole journey that our family is on, and so... The other night, uh, we had a a dairy free, gluten free, meatless meat lover's pizza. And I looked at my wife and I said, Mandy, I love you so much, and I hate this so much. Uh, yeah, I wish I didn't say that. That wasn't all supportive. But anyway, we all have these things in our life that we regret. Some of them are small and some of them are big. And I imagine that you're like me. You, could, you wish you could hit rewind and go, gosh, I wish I could do that over again. Hmm. So this morning... The rest of you, by the way, if you didn't raise your hand, you're not supposed to lie in church. Just saying, that's <laughs> super bad. This morning, we're starting um, a five-week series called Women of Faith, magnifying the work and worth of God in the lives of five Old Testament women who are surrendered to him. And this morning, we're starting with Sarah. Sarah, if you ever wondered if you could honor God and still have a life with regret, Sarah is for you. If you've ever wondered if your faith can stutter, Sarah is for you. If you've ever believed and not believed, Sarah is for you. This is probably unfairly reductionistic for her, but Sarah's story could be summarized in that wonderful New Testament prayer that says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So we're gonna to get to Sarah in, um, in a few minutes, but before we do, um, I wanna take about 10 minutes. I think it's wise and helpful to um, back up and maybe ask a question that maybe you might be wondering. Um, a series on women, why exactly? Uh, many of you know that we plan our teaching series like months in advance and that allows those of us who are tasked with um, preaching and teaching adequate time for preparation and study. And so, as something of a preamble of this series, um, I thought it might be helpful to give you five reasons why um, a series focusing on women, I think, is very important. And there are certainly more than five, but I've only got 38 minutes, so you're just getting five. Buy me a cup of coffee, I'll show you some more. So, this isn't exhaustive, this isn't everything, uh, but this just gets us in the proverbial ballpark. All right? First reason is what I call the cultural reason. In his book, Between Two Worlds, uh, one of my favorite authors, his name is John Stott, writes this, he says the questions that fill our newspapers should fill our pulpits. If we concentrate exclusively on spiritual topics, we perpetuate the disastrous separation of sacred from the secular and we divorce the Christian faith from the Christian life. Okay, that's a lot, what does he mean? He means that if our world is talking about it out there, we should be talking about it in here. And as a church, we should be the first. He also means that you and I, we are called to a context, a place and a time, this place, this time, as witnesses for Christ. What we hear in here on the first day of the week should inform how we live out there, the other six. And you know, the conversation around women is a cultural hot potato these days. Real conversation I had from somebody this last week expressed to me, I don't know if I can believe in a God who views women as second class citizens. How did she get that impression? We haven't always done a very good job of being clear about this one. Um, So this idea of speaking to cultural needs, just to be clear, I hope you don't come to church for the entertainment value. I hope you come to church because you're brokenhearted for a world that you love and you want to know what God's word has to say about your place in it. I hope that's why you're here. Sermons that don't translate to life are not sermons. Those are just lectures or TED Talks and you don't need lectures. The world is curious about a conversation, we must be equipped to handle that conversation however hot the potato might be. So that's the first reason, the cultural reason. Second reason I think it's important to focus on women um, is what I would say is the biblical reason. God's word casts a pretty vibrant vision for women. And I could list dozens of scriptures, and if I had the time, I would, but I don't. Um, Proverbs 31, though, we're just going to go here for just a second. You don't have to turn there. It'll all be on the screen. Um, Proverbs 31 is like an overcooked cliche sometimes when it comes to speaking about women. But I want to take another look at it at a a deeper lens. Um, The woman of Proverbs 31 has a really impressive portfolio, over the course of her whole life, here are some of the places where her calling might take her. Now, this is not a checklist for what every woman must do. This is a snapshot of what any woman is capable of doing with excellence and skill. First off, Proverbs thirty-one sixteen, She's in real estate. She considers a field and she buys it. She's in real estate. That's interesting. Also, she's a vine grower. She's a vintner. It says... With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. That's not a metaphor. This is a woman who runs the farm. Also, if you slide down a couple verses, Proverbs 31 18, she's a savvy economist. It says she perceives that her merchandise is profitable, she knows what to do with her money. Also, you slide down a little bit in verse 20, she's a bold philanthropist. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She runs her own nonprofit, if you want context. Slide down just one verse, 21. This one's great. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for her household are clothed in scarlet. Another word for that word, scarlet, is double layered. Like she makes sure that her kids and her household are well provided for. Provisions, not just her husband's job, it's also her job. And she's confident about her family. Verse 24, she runs a meaningful business. I love this one. She makes linen garments and sells them, she delivers sashes to the merchant. She's not intimidated by public spaces, she thrives in public spaces. It's the kind of woman we're talking about. She's influential, verse 26. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Put simply, people are better when they listen to her. And then the exclamation point at the end of all of it, verse 31, she's publicly praised for these things. Give her the fruit of her hands, let her works praise her at the gates. You put all that together, and this is a woman whose abilities and calling spill the banks of cultural expectation in ways that are so rich, so vibrant, so remarkable, and so powerful that when the writer thinks about her, his imagination just catapults into poetry. God's word has a very vibrant, vivid vision for women. Third reason why I think this is a valuable series to do is probably the personal reason. Um, I have a daughter. Many of you have daughters. Statistically, many of you are daughters. When I think about Hannah, and when I pray for her and my boys... I pray for the normal stuff. I pray that God will keep her safe. I pray that God will give her good friends, um, that he'll protect her. But I also ask God that the world might look differently because of her influence. Hannah is 14. And I want the world to look different because of what she's able to do for God with her life, I don't want her to shrink back, blend in, back down, or shut up. I want her to have a vision for what it means to be faithful like Sarah, courageous like Rahab, loyal like Ruth and Naomi, honest like Hannah, and bold like Esther. And so we hold these women up over these next five weeks, not as like quaint, cute curios in a cabinet somewhere. We hold them up as a vision for what God could do to any of us as we yield through his purposes. Quick word for the guys, Okay. I think this is worth addressing. Um, we do like character studies of men all the time in the church, and without batting an eye, we ask women to do the hard work of contextualizing them to fit their life, and I think we should be willing to do the same. These women that we're going to be looking at these next five weeks, they're not cute. They're a vision of what we can all become. And for those of you that are worried that we're slipping on some slippery slope, you needn't be worried about that. You should be worried that you're worried at all. Um, Fourth, sorry, I'll stop there. Jeez, come on, guys, it's okay. I only had one cup of coffee this morning. Bear with me. All right, fourth reason. This is my favorite one, actually, is the corrective reason. This is the heavy one, so follow me. A secular world, That is, a world that chooses for itself a starting point other than God has no reason to value humanity apart from utility. That's a big statement. What do I mean by that? When you start with the idea that each person, from the moment of conception is an individual creation of a personal God. That's what Psalm 139 teaches. You are choosing, when you think about it that way, you're choosing a starting point that sees every human not as what they can do, but that who God has made them to be. Okay, we would call this a biblical worldview of humanity. But... When a culture removes that block from its foundation, which our world has doubtlessly done, you end up with a theory of humanity and personhood and gender that is not marvelous, that is not miraculous, that is not beautiful, but is only as valuable as it is useful. You end up with a conception of humanity that is godless and ultimately very utilitarian. If not for God, all we are is an amalgamation of cells hurtling through space. <laughs> There's no reason for any of this. Without God, humanity has no point. And you can call that moral deconstruction or post-modernity or cultural Marxism or whatever you want to. But here's how this moral deconstruction affects women specifically. Um, it should not surprise us that our culture views women primarily as sex objects. It shouldn't surprise us. It should bother us but it shouldn't surprise us. Here's why. Dehumanization, looking at somebody for their utility, is the logical extension, the, the, the just makes sense outworking, the conclusion of a culture that has rejected God. Pornography makes sense in a godless culture because there's no reason to object to it. A post-nominal Christian America which has removed the essential building block that says each person is an individual creation of a personal God and as such has inherent worth and value and dignity. A post-nominal Christian culture has nothing to say against any of it. It has no logical reason to value anyone beyond what they can do. And so we, as the church have a responsibility to stand as light in the darkness and offer a bold, strong, corrective word in our speech and our actions that says women are not objects for sexual utility, but as fellow image bearers worthy of dignity and respect. A secular world can't say that. It has no reason to, and so we must. Get me? Fifth reason, which we would say is the gospel reason the gospel reason. When Paul writes his letter to the churches in Galatia, and he says this, this is Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What does he mean? Here's what he means. He means that Christ is available to everyone equally, that the gospel is the great leveler, at the time that Paul wrote that, his words were jaw-droppingly countercultural. Ancient Jewish culture taught that there were three things that you didn't want to be. You ready? You didn't want to be a Gentile, you didn't want to be a slave, and you didn't want to be a woman. And in that order, Paul writes, again, Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel. Jesus is not just the savior of this people or that people. He's not the savior of rich people, poor people, or this group or that group. Here's the gospel. Not that everyone will be saved, but that anyone can be saved. Jesus opens the door wide to anyone who will repent of their sin and run to him. Let's go one step further, though, and then we'll get to Sarah. (laughs) The beauty of the gospel, and we need, I wish I I could stay here for just 45 minutes, because this next point is so crucial. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus doesn't ask us to downplay our distinctives, ethnic, gender, or economic, Rather, the gospel reaches wide enough to both elevate and incorporate those distinctives into the body of Christ called the church. The church ought to be a living picture of God's design for human flourishing. And so, one of the reasons why I think it's important to devote five weeks, a scant five weeks, to focusing on God's worth and work in the lives of faithful women is because it reinforces the wide, open, expansive vision of the gospel. So with all that, let's get to it. Regrets, any of them? You don't have to share, it's okay. Keep them to yourself. For those watching online, I know many are sick this week with what's going around. Go ahead and drop your biggest regret in the comment, just joking. (laughs) You don't have to do that. You're lucky you're in this room. So over these next five weeks, we're going to look at God's work in the lives of actually six women, Sarah and Rahab, week one and two. Ruth and Naomi go together in week three, Hannah and then Esther. And we're going to take them in roughly biblical order. And so this morning, Sarah. Um, Scripture only gives us a window into the last 25 years of Sarah's life. These 25 years play out over four scenes. We first meet Sarah when she's 65 years old. So let's dig in and discover what we might learn about God from senior citizen Sarah. Brandon at nchapel.com if you need to send me an email. Okay. Here's the first thing we know about Sarah Genesis 11, toward the end. It's just a detail. Now, Sarah was barren, she had no child. This is the introduction to this woman who becomes a pillar of faith and a model for faithlessness. This scant detail is how we're introduced to her. Barren, she can't have kids. Unusable, incapable, and in her culture, barrenness is a sign of judgment. Now we're giving this detail because it is the single most defining element in her and Abraham's marriage. You're trying to do something that you can't do and it's something that's really good, but it's just not clicking for you. It's not happening. This soon to be Old Testament power couple is defined first and foremost by their inability. File that away for just a little bit. Slide down a few verses Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, this is his name at this point. It gets changed later. Go from your country and your kindred and your forefather's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And all the families in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here's what God tells Abraham. He says, go start walking. Well, where? You'll know when I tell you. Just start walking. Leave everything that's familiar, reliable, comfortable, and normal. Just start walking. Oh, and one day, you're gonna be a great nation. Slide down a few more verses and God gets specific in verse seven. He says, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. And you can imagine Abram going, to my what? (laughs) I don't have any of those. He gets home, Sarah, honey, you're not going to believe this. (laughs) And right here, we start to get the impression that God wants to do something that seems impossible. Because the question is, how are you going to do this? Abraham is 75. Sarah is 65. That seems a little late, (laughs) You shopping for diapers with your AARP discount? How's that gonna go, dude? And then here's where things get wrinkly. Pun absolutely intended. Slide down to verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. By the way, if you're looking for like a Valentine's Day card makeup, it's a great verse to rip wildly out of context and just like here. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is my wife. Then they will kill me, but they'll let you live. Now get a load of this. Say you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you. And that my life will be spared for your sake. You little conniver. (laughs) Funny thing about the human heart when the human heart feels pressure, it immediately starts concocting a plan. Can't blame them. I mean, we do the same thing all the time. Hey, God, here's my solution. And don't you want to like reach through the pages and go, no, God promised everything's going to be okay. And now you're about to pass off your wife for your personal preservation, reaping the benefits of her physical beauty so you can save your skin. Husband of the Year Award goes to. So, how's this go? Verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was beautiful, very beautiful. When the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And Abram realizes his buffoonery and he repents and he steps up and he saves the day. Wait, no, he doesn't. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. He had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. God lets Abram's plan work for a while. Here's the thing about God. He lets us taste our own faithlessness just long enough so we can hate it. He's about to reel in this Canaanite. Brace yourself. Verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why do you say she's my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife, Take her, go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And the curtain falls on scene one. Now, if this was a play and the curtain fell, and you were sitting next to somebody right now, what would your conversation be like in the intermission? Probably something like this This is terrible! Dude's clearly got some personal preservation issues. Sarah here is just kind of playing the part of the willing accomplice. This whole thing is a faith disaster. And sitting under the shadow of shame, here's the good news, which we're gonna to get to later. Events of my life reveal my identity, but they don't have to remain my identity. The events of my life may reveal my identity, but they don't have to remain my identity. Scene two. Scene two. Ten years later, Genesis 16, verse one. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Ten years. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. You ever been to Cedar Point? Sure you have. This is northeast Ohio. Cedar Point's kind of like our birthright around here. You know the part where you sit down And you're like, okay, thing comes in, you're strapped in, you're ready to go. You pull away from the platform and you're looking up and you're like, okay, click, 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 click. And then like you look over and you go, I I think we're going down there. And you can tell things are about to get out of control, but you can't stop it because you're strapped in. That's this. Genesis 16:1 this is what theologians and biblical scholars call the exposition of a story it's basically the biblical version of once upon a time and it tells us the who the when the what and kind of how this story is going to go she had no children but she had an egyptian female servant named hagar i wonder where this is going to go <laughs> verse 2 sarah said to abram behold now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Whoa, quite an accusation there, Sarah. Really? Careful. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant that it may be that I should obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, gave her to her husband as his wife. This is getting a little too Games of thrones for me. You probably caught this, but in a subtle twist of irony, Abram and Sarah's roles are reversed. Back in Egypt, Abram was the conniving self-preservationist. Sarah's just kind of there. Here, Sarah is the one orchestrating the scheme, and Abram's just kind of along for the ride. The grammar is strikingly similar to another Old Testament story that bears a, a tremendous amount of importance here. Tell me if you pick this up. It's right there in verse three. So she said to her husband, so the serpent said to the woman, So she took her servant, so she took the fruit, and gave her to her husband, and gave some to her husband. Coincidence? And just like in the garden, it doesn't take long for the fruit to start to sour. Verse four, and he went into Hagar, she conceived. And when she saw that she conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. And in a master stroke of leadership, (coughs) sarcasm intended, Abram said to Sarah, behold your servants in your power, do whatever you please. And Sarah dealt harshly with her and she fled. Gosh. Curtain falls. Scene two. And things aren't much better, are they? If anything, it's just a recapitulation of scene one. This is terrible. Sarah's clearly got some self preservation issues, and Abram's just a willing accomplice. The whole thing is a faith disaster. But aren't you glad that events of my life may reveal my identity, but they don't have to remain my identity? The events of my life may reveal my identity. They don't have to remain my identity. Scene three, slide down to chapter 18. The Lord appeared to Abram by the oaks of Mamre, and he sat by the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Abram lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if i found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet. Rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three as of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a calf, tender and good, gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he'd prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Here's the situation Abraham, by now a wealthy, well respected herdsman, offers such over the top hospitality we can conclude that these three very mysterious visitors were probably pretty important because he hurried to his tent and he bowed low. Now, if you come to my house for dinner, I'm gonna give you a hug. You might get a little fist bumpity bump. You're probably not gonna get that. <laughs> so still unsure of who he's dealing with, he shows some pretty extravagant generosity. And there's a bit of comedy in here. Did you get what he, what he promised him? He said, oh, a little bit of water and just like a little morsel of bread. What's he bring? Cakes made from three seas of flour. Now, I know we don't know what that is, so I did the homework for you. That's enough flour to make 27 loaves of bread. Good, gravy. And then meat, not just meat, like a choice calf. The cakes are the appetizer. Think 27 loaves of garlic bread. The choice tender calf showcases his social standing. Thinks 12-ounce filet mignon. Abraham plays the part Perfectly. He's orchestrated this whole thing masterfully. But then one of these mysterious nameless guests is about to ask a question that changes absolutely everything. The stranger shifts his posture, strengthens his tone, and looks Abram dead in the eye. Verse 9 They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, Oh, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And the light bulb goes on. Abram's jaw drops to the floor. Fork falls. (laughs) And then here comes the best part though. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abram and Sarah were old advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out, my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abram, why does Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? We get the impression that Sarah is just far enough away where a mere man probably couldn't discern this little like side laugh to herself behind the sound dampening folds of a tent. So the dialogue must be supernaturally discerned. And then here comes the question, verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? And that's the real question that these two have been wrestling with for decades now. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Quick Bible study tip. When you're reading your Bible, particularly the Old Testament narratives, a story's meaning is usually couched or hidden in a line of dialogue. And in this case, it's the rhetorical question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. He said, yeah, but you did. (laughs) Sarah's faithlessness is compounded. First she laughs and then she lies. And their guest, by now they both know this is someone other than just some like random dude, tightens the screws and says, yeah, you did. Yeah. Here's the thing though, Sarah, I'm gonna do something that's gonna blow your mind bigger than you can imagine. You think you're laughing now, With dinner over, the guests get up and leave. Curtain falls, end scene three. Aren't you glad that events may reveal your identity, but they don't have to remain your identity? Now, I don't know about you. We're gonna get to scene four in just a second. But I'm kind of thinking, three strikes and you're out, guys. (laughs) Like, first, in Egypt, you flat out lie to save your skin. Like, it's an honest lie if there is such a thing. But you, you know better. And then secondly, your unbelief led to a despicable act of manipulation where you wanted a child so badly you were willing to do anything to get it. You got an heir without God's help, which led to heartache. Strike two. And then here, third, God himself is speaking to you. And you laugh at him. And then you lie to him. Like, I don't know, that's kind of the definition of faithlessness to me. Swing and a miss, strike three. Put all that together, and here's what you've got to conclude. These are not the actions of someone who serves as a model of faith, right? Her actions are unethical, almost illegal, certainly not admirable, and so I mean if we're gonna hold Sarah up and go be like Sarah, uh, her track record is a little problematic. So how do we reconcile this? We've said events are not identities, but at some point you gotta shake your head and go, I don't know, these two are just a faith train wreck. Sarah's life at this point has served more as a testimony of what not to do than what to do. But something happens after Genesis 18 because events don't reveal my identity, or they reveal my identity, but they don't have to remain my identity. Genesis 21 The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abram a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abram called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore, Isaac. By the way, Isaac means laughter. And Abram circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abram was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said that Abram and Sarah would nurse children? Look at what God has done. <laughs> Look at what God did. I find it so interesting that Sarah's first words after Isaac is born is, God. God. Look at what God did. God would God's the one behind this. This isn't me. This is God. God's faithful. He kept his promises. This wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for God. That's quite a shift from the pfft whatever 9 months earlier in the folds of the tent. And then the whole thing ends with another wonderful rhetorical question. Who would have said this was possible? And so the story ends well. Barely. But well. Sarah and I have something in common. We are just smart enough to try and figure life out on our own and I wonder if you are the same way. So how do we summarize Sarah's life? First things first, this is not a story about fertility. This is a story about faith what constitutes saving faith? Answer, saving faith is not my ability, or not faith in my ability to believe. Saving faith is faith in God's ability to do what he says. I'll say that again because this is super crucial to understanding Sarah. Saving faith is not faith in my ability to believe. Saving faith is faith in God's ability to do what he says. Now here's the real question. Why do you need to know the God of Sarah's story? Why do you need this? What does she have to do with me? Great question, glad you asked. Turns out, doing the impossible is what our God is all about. Doing the impossible accomplishing the unbelievable is the crux of the gospel. Sarah's story is the prologue, the appetizer, the introduction for how God saves his people. Just as Sarah's womb is barren, unable to bring about on her own that which God has promised, despite every attempt to do so, so we are spiritually barren apart from God's initiative on our behalf. You think a geriatric pregnancy is impossible? You think that's something? You think that's laughable? Sit tight. 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's impossible. That's unbelievable. That's something that only God can do. Today I've been saying a lot that events may reveal my identity, but they don't have to remain my identity. I've not really said what that means, and so here it is. The events of Brandon Marshall's life reveal that I am a faithless sinner, faithless and stubborn. I'm trying to outflank God in matters of my life. The events of my life reveal that I have a sinful identity, but praise God it doesn't have to remain my identity here's what second corinthians 5:21 means that god sees us as we are rebels Rebels who revile him and resist him, Romans 3. We are all self-oriented, self-preservationists. We are self-protective, self-interested. We are all of us, Sarah, engineering our own redemption and failing miserably, conniving our own deliverance, nosediving pathetically, in need of forgiveness, incapable of forgiving ourselves. And so our only hope is God. God. Our only hope is God doing what he says, following through on his promises, however impossible it may seem. And so God, seeing me in the 4K sharpness of my sin, looks to the sinless perfection of Christ. When God's word says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin. Here's what that means, get this. God sees Jesus as if he lived my life. Sit with that for a minute. All those regrets. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. As if Jesus lived my life with all of my sin and all of my thoughts and everything in his dark and shameful, and sinful, and terrible, and he put on him the punishment that was due to me. This is called the theological doctrine of propitiation, the turning away of God's wrath, away from me, and Jesus willingly absorbing it all on himself, and something, I know, I know what went on in your head, because something rises up in my head that says, no, that's not fair, I will design a better way, and God says, no, no, but then it gets even better. The gospel isn't just that Jesus lived my life, as unimaginable as that is. The gospel goes one step further. In that same act of propitiation achieved on the cross, it is now as though I lived his life. In him, we might become the righteousness of God. That means that Jesus' righteousness, which is complete and perfect and full and rich and good, is now given to me such that the Father now looks on me and says, you are holy, you get to walk. (laughs) And that's grace. And it's not just amazing, it's unimaginable, it's impossible, you might even say laughable. Sarah is a signpost that introduces us to the nature of saving faith. That saving faith is not faith in my ability to believe. Saving faith is faith in God's ability to do what he says. And God always does what he says. He's never broken one promise. That's what Sarah's story points us to. The cross. Band, you guys can come on back out. And just a quick thought for you. We're going to sing about God's faithfulness in just a bit. But when we started this morning, I asked anybody, Do you have any regrets? (laughs) I need to ask you a second question. What are you going to do about those regrets? And you have two options only two. One, you can try and get righteousness on your own. You can try and make up for it on your own. Let me fast track you. You can't do it, so stop trying. Or, 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 you can cast yourself on the mercy and the grace of the Lord shown in the power and the promise of the cross. At the moment when you acknowledge your sin and confess his sufficiency, everything changes. So it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, if you're 90 years old or you're nine. If you've got a house full of kids or a house empty of kids, here's what God wants for you. Trust the provision of God of Christ. Trust him imperfectly if you have to, but trust him sincerely. Don't look next to you for your salvation. Don't look within you for your salvation. Don't look around you for your salvation. You look to Christ and you let him deal with it. The events of your life reveal your identity, but praise God they don't have to remain your identity. God, you are so faithful you have never not kept a promise. Everything is yes and amen in what you have done because it's who you are. Help us, Lord, to trust you. Thank you for the cross and for all of those who've borne in their own way witness to it. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.